the Murray's safety of sea and the blazing speed of small talk. <laughs> Hello, welcome to security, cryptography, or whatever. I am Deirdre. Hi, I'm Tom. <laughs> I'm David. Uh, today we're talking about NSO Group, Pegasus, is iOS a, a burning trash fire or not? Do we need to do bug bounties better or not? Why isn't everything written in Rust already? Spoiler, it, it takes time to replace already written software. Um, why you shouldn't just give up because software is riddled with bugs. So recently there was a big news headline across multiple publications about an Israeli-based, was it cyber espionage tooling? What do we want to call these? They're a hacking company. Yeah, they buy zero days. That's like what they've, they're they not the only ones. Or do they find them? And why not both? Why not oh. both? Does um, anyone like, does anyone find zero day vulnerable? I always kind of assume that everybody that, that sells products that have, that run implants, but are vectored through zero day vulnerabilities are also in the market for those vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, NSO group did a little bit of everything, but especially bought some and then did not necessarily buy the exploit. They probably weaponized the exploits. They created the exploits themselves and delivered them. Anyway, spyware, malware, usually targeted in the context of their product Pegasus at mobile devices. In the news lately, The Guardian, Washington Post, a checking from Sisson Lab, found a whole bunch of targets from a source. I don't think we've ever narrowed down exactly where this list of targets came from. A bunch of phone numbers that all these journalistic bodies associated with targets such as the Prime Minister of France, Emmanuel Macron, or a bunch of family members of murdered journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And they confirmed a forensic analysis that they were their devices from the time of their targeting were littered with evidence of this Pegasus spyware that allows the target that actually, as far as we can tell, got onto these devices by leveraging a a zero day in iMessage, in iMessage media parsing, so that you never had to click on a link. You never had to officially interact with the the attacker interaction with you. You never, never had to click a link or download a payload or anything like that actively. It just tried to send it something to your phone number on iMessage and it automatically just did it in the background and installed this payload and were totally owned up. And uh, whoever had paid NSO Group for their Pegasus software got practically everything as far as we can tell. And part of the problem with with trying to track down these Pegasus was basically they were not persistent, or at least this iteration, the most recent iteration of Pegasus was not persistent. Previous iterations, you were persistent so that if you rebooted the phone, they would just still be there. I think the latest iteration is reported to be not persistent. So if you rebooted the phone, it would be gone and they would have to own you up again, but because it was happening quietly under the radar, they could just send you a message again and you would never even know. Part of the problem there being iOS is so locked down, you need to use a jailbreak to do the forensic analysis to get evidence of getting owned up. 
Yeah. So Thomas, is iOS just like a tire fire? And why is the quote unquote most secure operating system in the world so vulnerable to someone send you a message on iMessage and nothing happening and you not noticing and then you're completely owned up? <laughs> you can be the most secure operating system in common use and still be a complete tire fire, right? <laughs> That's an indictment of computer science, not so much an indictment of, of Apple per se. So, I mean, it's possible that Apple is doing better than any other mainstream vendor right now in locking down its operating system and still going to be enough to... We, we talk about NSO Group, but the, the reality here is that the economic force for this is state-level adversaries, right? People with my mental model for state level adversaries and i'm not an expert here right this is not the field i work in i just have dumb opinions about these things mm -hmm. but my mental model for this is just state level adversaries are adversaries with effectively unlimited budgets so you can be fantastic on security relative to the rest of the industry and relative to where we were in the 2000s and still be not well matched against an adversary that can address the gray market to find vulnerabilities and can mm. spend arbitrary amounts of money to outdo you. There's also, we're all coming out of a legacy of not just memory unsafe languages, which are obviously a problem and somehow still controversial, but also <laughs> just legacy system design, okay. just how you construct these systems out of components and all that. It's also possible that you can be on the ball with design and have a really clear idea of where things need to go. but no realistic amount of money that you could spend could get you to a place where right now you would be perfectly well matched against a state level adversary. That's like my high level take is mm -hmm. I think that you read Matt Green's post, The Case Against Security Nihilism, and I think nobody here is an advocate <laughs> for security nihilism. You I'm an advocate security for ni nihilism? <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. After reading the post, I'm left with that question, right? I think you can be a computer science nihilist and say that we should throw all these things in the dumpster. Right? Like, I'll sign off for that, right? Yo, like, the silicon I, lies to us. It's like we, we ask it to do stuff and it's like, yeah, we'll take that under advisement. We're just going to compute some stuff in the however way we want it to. So I, I almost agree on that regard. <laughs> it's a recurring theme with me when I try to talk to other software developers about these problems where... There's one of our premises that we don't examine a lot is the idea that whatever people are doing with phones or with computers or whatever, they have to do those things. This came up a lot during yeah. campaign security, right? Or with journalists. Yeah. So this comes up a lot with journalists. They yeah. have to go talk to people. It's their job, right? But when you're talking about sensitive targets that don't necessarily have to go and talk to everybody and don't necessarily have to have one phone that's like their command center for everything they do in their life, there's always this question of, do you have to be using these devices at all for this stuff? We'd all rather there be a world where all this stuff is safe, but it's just like with secure messaging where you know, there's a lot of secure messaging technology out there that, you know, is better than nothing, but not as good as Signal is right now. Mm -hmm. And always the refrain for that is, you know, this is better than nothing. It's cryptography. People aren't going to attack the cryptography first. If you weren't using mm -hmm. this, you'd use nothing at all. And it's like, there is an option besides using nothing at all, which is not sending the messages at all, not doing that, being aware of the risk that you take when you have an online profile for this stuff. And I think that kind of goes through all of this stuff is we might not be at a point yet in our industry where we're ready to support all the use cases for all of these like targets of the UAE. So <laughs> like uh, sources that you met, you don't even know who they are, but you got like contacted through some sort of secure drop, maybe not secure drop, but you have to trust them as far as you know them and you might not know them at all. You just know that they are someone inside something that you're trying to report on and they might be sending you images or 
voice memos or whatever. And that's what you're trying to, that's your use case of these devices in the software. And if you can't do that securely, then what are you even doing with this technology, basically? Yeah, there's also, and David here, but I'm sure he has something more intelligent to say. But I feel like the the kernel of Matt Green's post is this paragraph where it's like, in the world I inhabit, Yvonne works up tomorrow. Yvonne is the lead security at Apple. Good guy. In, in, in Matt Green's dream world, Yvonne wakes up and says, today I'm going to put NSO out of business. Let's put a pin in the idea that the right thing to do here is to put NSO out of business. NSO is okay. evil. Don't get me wrong. But there's an unexamined premise about the, the goal of putting a specific bad actor out of business. But that aside, uh-huh. like he wakes up, he decides, you know what? Today I'm going to you know, go to my bosses and get a blank check to put NSO mm-hmm. out of business. Is there a blank check that Apple can write that mm-hmm. solves that problem within the next four years? Mm-hmm. Like, is it a thing that's possible for them to do? I, I, I don't know. Like maybe it is, but I, I, it is not at all clear to me that that is a, that's a one paragraph question rather than an entire blog post worth of things that we should examine about how possible that is to do. If you replace put NSO out of business because that's complicated because of market dynamics, like, and take the business model, everything out of it. Why don't we just say, give Yvonne a blank check to stop having, have, let's say, less than 10% or less than 1% the number of exploitable, remotely exploitable vulnerabilities in Mm -hmm. iMessage or the network stack or that whole anything that can an attacker can send a message to basically on the iPhone. And we ignore the fact that NSO has their own market dynamics and that UAE has a lot of money. The police doing traffic stops in the UAE drive Lamborghinis, at least according to Top Gear. So scale of money we're talking about here and so if we say you know what maybe they'll always be able to afford million hundred even hundred million dollar exploits which seems unlikely they would get that high no matter how rare they are if we take the business out of the equation i think that there's still uh, a lot of things that could be done to improve the state of ios is anything would you disagree with anything matt green says if we replaced put nso out of business with just make the attack surface of message parsing better on iOS. Yeah, I I feel like I have the two responses to that. The first and kind of silly one is I'm kind of picking on the words that he he chose there about putting NSO in particular out of business. But the the real question I'm asking is if if your threat model is this threat model, if your threat model is the market for... I, I generally come at this thinking that any plausible cost for these kinds of implant technologies and vectors and all that, right? Like any plausible cost you come up with, it's probably petty cash for the Seychelles Islands, right? <laughs> like uh, almost everything they do involves staffing multiple people and having them travel around the world. Just the logistics costs of running any kind of serious intelligence operation. Yeah. Like it's, I, I assume it's dominated by really boring things that we don't think about a lot, but that's where all the money goes. Is like, it's all health insurance is what it costs, right? <laughs> and an exploit compared to that. Can you like, imagine the rate on that group, right? If you tell the insurance <laughs> company that everyone is spies, the pre-existing are, conditions, man. But they all stay in the towel in the very center of Fort Meade. So like maybe that gives them a discount or something. <laughs> and an exploit is essentially it's like capex cost 
You pay it once and then you have this mm. capability and it's push button for the thing you're trying to get out of it, right? We talk a lot about how police use exploits now and things like that and where that's going. And like, you can see the attraction, right? Because the alternative to doing that, the alternative to doing signals intelligence is classic policing, which is forget about like the civil liberty. That, that sounds terrible, but forget about the civil liberty, <laughs> forget about the civil liberties aspect to it for a second. But just the notion of tailing somebody with a team of people. 24-7 figuring out where they're going. Again, <laughs> it's just like the health insurance costs of, of having all those people. I, I have a hard time understanding how you could reasonably drive. Like, it's so valuable, right? That The ability that people are getting out of exploits is, is so valuable that... Yep. And I bring this back just to bring it back to computer science, right? Like, my real question here, is there a check that Yvonne could write that would maybe cost is the right way to think about it, or maybe something else is the right way to think about it. But can you drive that, that, that threshold up to the point where any government that we've ever heard about wouldn't pay that money in, in the blink of an eye? And I'm just wondering things like, if you could put $10 billion down um, mm. on securing iOS tomorrow, do you have the people to do it? Do the processes exist to hire those people? Think about all the changes you have to make to iOS. Like yeah. those changes are happening anyways, but they're happening over like a five-year timeline, right? Like, all right, if let's you look talk at about some of those changes. So things that I think of specifically, you talked about like re-architecting some parts of iOS, ideally. Think, first, first things first, like rewriting some of these data parsers audio, visual, video, images, neither in a memory safe language because they've tried to put them in a sandbox and they, they called it Blastor. And we just saw a bunch of patches come out where they were like, oh, you can get around Blastor. Sorry, you can get privilege escalation into the kernel. Sorry that Blastor is uh, not very strong. So what well, else would presumably we Presumably they still would have had more without Blastor, right? I presumably but like that's I don't the whole know. point of a sandbox even yeah. if you do get around it that's still time you have to spend getting around it and maybe it blocks like maybe 50 percent of things are no longer feasible because of blast or maybe it's 10 percent, or maybe it's five percent sure. but i think it's arguably isn't that the nihilism that <laughs> is referring to as being like well the sandbox didn't work guess we that doesn't mean you shouldn't have sandboxes. Oh, no, <laughs> I would say sandbox and rewrite it in a memory safe language mm -hmm. because there's still logic bugs mm -hmm. that you can have in your thing written in a memory safe language. You would like to have your sandbox around that as well. Yeah, the sandbox is a lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's why they did Blast it first. Right. Blastor is written in Swift, right? Blastor is in a memory safe language. Cool. It is. And it's also, I, I think it's, the, I think it's still seat, seatbelt sandboxes are the thing on iOS. And like friends okay. I have or acquaintances I have that actually do iOS work are going to make fun of me for saying that. But it also, in addition to being written in Swift, it also has a really tightly locked down kind of system call and IPC filter. So you, you can't talk to the network from inside of the Blastor sandbox. You can't touch the file system. You can't talk to device drivers from it, which if you read if you try to bring yourself up to date on iOS exploits, that's where a lot of the stuff is. is exploits and device it's... drivers? What is this, Windows in 2005? <laughs> but if, if you read the Amnesty report or the forensic methodology report that they published there, it looks like yeah. in a lot of cases what happened here are, and again, I'm, I'm saying this too often, but I'm probably wrong about all this. But it looks like in a lot of cases what happens are you don't send a complicated file to 
to iMessage directly per se, so much as okay. you send something to iMessage that causes some other application on iOS that was not considered part of the attack surface to interact with the attacker directly. So you're actually, uh, you're working through Apple Music, for instance, which nobody thinks of Apple Music as hard yeah. of the attack surface, right? Uh -huh. there, there's no zero-click Apple Music, except there is if you can trigger Apple Music through an iMessage thing. This, there was like a fad for these kinds of vulnerabilities back in like 2010, where they were all URL handlers. A, a really common vulnerability in an iOS app to dock is you have a URL handler, it does something based on URL clicks. And essentially, you can synthesize roughly the same kind of thing out of an iMessage thing. So it doesn't really matter how you sandbox iMessage, if iMessage can also trigger photos or Apple Music or things like right. that, where you're interacting with that application instead, which brings or us Apple back to Pay. it's all of iOS. It's yeah. all of iOS that's the issue, right? It's every application that's built on iOS. Uh -huh. I think the first, or at least first from Charlie Miller, who was one of the first, I don't know who the first person was on iOS, and I'm not going to make a claim uh, because someone will get mad at me. But I remember Charlie Miller found an exploit on the iPhone in the very early days of iPhone, and it was in the URL parser. Mm. Not surprised. 2007. Okay, so Thomas, how would you re-architect iOS? <laughs> do, like, do you have any, if you were Thomas Patachek, knee Ivan, and you were handed a, a big budget and had everything solved for you, what would your plan of attack be to deal with this sort of thing? I would turn that job down. Okay. <laughs> if they give you $10 billion and several of that is, is just for you to take the job. <laughs> if they give me $10 billion, I'll take the job. I won't do a good job of it. I'm just warning them in advance if they're thinking about saying that money to me. <laughs> um, that's not value they're going to get out of me. So, okay. It's like when OPM was offering like 120K to be their CISO. It's that's like, it? not touching that. But, but that but, 120K but that is... and having to testify to Congress on arguably a consistent basis? No, thank you. Mm. But, but that is not a problem that Apple has, right? If you talk to security people on Slacks or whatever, they all know that, right? Everyone mm -hmm. kind of has a rough idea of the investment Apple puts into security. But the general, the broader audience, most of the people that are reading the security nihilism post, it's not clear to them at all how much Apple invests in security. And I'm just going to sound like mm -hmm. I'm shilling for Apple here. I have no commercial relationship with them or whatever. Mm -hmm. But they're one of the three biggest investors in yep information security, software security in the world. If you're talking about doing substantially better than they are, like at a different level of, of what they are, you're talking about no commercial entity in the world does that. But you'll read responses to this where it's like, Apple needs to take this stuff seriously at last, at long last. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I, I don't have a way to finish that sentence. It's yeah, just, it's like, <laughs> I'm well, kind of sputtering. like you, I, I would say like the only thing that I can think that might be on a better footing is Fuchsia is coming. Fuchsia is all Rust except for a microkernel that was written in C, C++ just because they had to write it before Rust was like barely at one nano or whatever. But Fuchsia is like a toy OS that's over in a corner that's vaguely going to re replace or ad hoc Linux slash Unix. It's not iOS or Android, like multiple billions of devices over the world. So yeah, trying, I agree that trying to be like, oh, Apple doesn't take security seriously. Is, that, that, would, that would preclude everyone else in the world, practically. Okay, pretend money's no object and you actually want to do something. Like, do you have an idea of something that needs to be re-architected about iOS? Or is it literally like all these components are vulnerable on their own? It doesn't really matter how you reorganize them you just need to drill into all of them because that is just how an operating system like this works 
Okay. I mean, <laughs> so it's been a while since I've looked at the details of how iMessage works. But okay. if you let me hand wave a little bit, is the messages are almost entirely XML or XML is a large component of it. Okay. And at this point, for all of the things that they do, it's basically a file system, right? An iMessage okay. message can have attachments. It can have links that are parsed out into other stuff it, that create network calls. It can have games embedded in it with app clips. It can <laughs> launch an app, right? There's a lot of stuff that's going on there. And if I had to venture a guess, right, if you remember the early days of iMessage and like the iPhone texting, it was just like, oh, your message is going over the internet and it's blue now. Mm. And you could make the iMessage whale. Does anyone remember the iMessage whale? Where no. you hit enter a bunch of t- if you t- just hit enter a bunch of times, then you did a period or a bunch of underscores and another period. The little tail of the bubble <laughs> looks like the edge of a whale. And so the message looked like a whale. And because Cute. they had the, the <laughs> shading and lighting on the sides, it actually looked like before they did the flat redesign. Anyway, Google iMessage whales. Okay. <laughs> but right, it began as like something that was a replacement for SMS right. and is now something that can send like arbitrary content with attachments and mm-hmm. like code to some extent. And yeah. so I would believe that there exists a simpler implementation of iMessage than they're using now. Okay. And whenever you simplify any sort of network ish protocol, it becomes easier to implement securely. And then on top of that, ripping out as much of it as possible and re-implementing it in a memory-safe language or closer to memory-safe language like Zig is obviously going. I suspect they would do it in Swift. When I've talked to Apple people, they've basically been like Swift percolation throughout Apple is just in a weird state of like where you can and cannot use Swift in the build process. Mm. It tends to do more with build stuff again Mm -hmm. like someone from apple can probably correct me but i would definitely like to rewrite a bunch of this stuff because even of the most recent patches that have come out for ios mac os ipad os i forget what it's actually called more than half of them have been memory safety vulnerabilities that have been fixed was it i think it's like fish in a barrel or or whatever that account is keeps track of all of them and that's it's very handy the analogy like i would use would be like word documents from like the 90s through early 2000s compared to now. Not to say that, not that I recommend opening an untrusted Word document from anybody, but like Word document serialization began as take pointer to struct that is Word document and call like (laughs) write the system call on that pointer and great, we're done. And then we'll read it (laughs) in directly to the pointer. And then with the docx format, they switched to an XML based format, which is, hopefully easier to parse than a C-struct in memory-based format. Yeah. And stuff did get better over time. And they so, did disable certain macros that in mm-hmm. the in in Microsoft Word. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. opening a random Word document on modern mm-hmm. Windows is just like a completely different stack of both capability mm-hmm. and implementation than it was 10 years ago, 15 years yeah. ago. And that took, what, five years, 10 years? I don't know how long, but like... Yeah. It's clearly possible for a large tech company with effectively a file format, which is what iMessage is, to mm-hmm. not only, to redo it again, better, stronger, harder, faster. Zag it takes time. a lot of changes to Windows, though. Mm-hmm. So, like from the late '90s, 2000s, to where Windows exists now, is like a different beast of 
separating what your capabilities on the system. I've heard arguments that basically iOS has separation between apps to some degree, but it could be a lot better. So I think re-implementing iMessage and simplifying the protocol and simplifying the stack in the ways you just described is necessary and good, but also don't forget the rest of iOS, I guess, something to that degree. When Microsoft did that, they it was a root and branch effort across the the entire tree for them. In, in a previous life, I was kind of peripherally involved with some of that stuff and a reasonable mental model is they probably put as much energy into pen testing. I was in middle school. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah like they, they probably put as much effort into fuzzing and pen testing Minesweeper as you know any company has ever yeah. put into their own. It's like everything got hit, and they also they really pissed off a lot of their users with the subsequent releases that metabolized all that separation that they were doing. And so, like they, they did those two giant things that I don't know. This is three people who don't really do iOS security work talking about <laughs> iOS security, which is great. But I don't know the extent to which Apple is doing kind of root and branch memory safety stuff. Uh, by the way, Microsoft didn't do root and branch memory safety. They did root and branch don't call store copy anymore, which is yeah. not quite the same thing. And for all of that, is, is Windows in a place right now that's substantially better than iOS is? I don't know that that's true. So I think it's kind of unproven to me whether you can just repeat what Microsoft did and get to a much better place. Like they for a while, they stopped worms, right? Um, maybe this is yeah. our modern equivalent of worms, but they, they didn't end vulnerabilities on the platform. Question. I think the analogy is just, it was a major upgrade to the state of security. Not that I don't think anyone's trying to claim that windows is more secure or has less exploits than iOS. Although I don't, maybe it does, but like I'm, if someone was, you know, talking to me and saying, I have sensitive stuff or if I was in charge of securing a CEO's devices, I'd be like, you're getting rid of your Windows PC. We're getting rid of your Mac mm -hmm. and you're doing all of your work on an iPad, like an iPad or a Chromebook or something. That's a good, exactly. that's a good point. Basically like our default is if you need a device and you think you're, or we think, or you might be a high value target, use an iPad for all of your document handling. If you're a journalist or if you're a, like a political candidate or something like that, or you're a principal, possibly a Chromebook. Where would we compare Mac OS to where Windows is? Because we used to think, oh, Mac OS is like, it had a, a shine of, oh, all of these viruses and malware and crapware that went after Windows because Windows was like 90% of the market or whatever. And I don't know where it's at now. Like, oh, you don't have all these problems on Mac OS and you can make an argument about popularity versus actual vulnerability. I don't have a good gut feeling about is Windows now like fully patched, like top, like whatever Windows were on Windows 7. Their security architecture can like possibly better or comparable to macOS just because macOS has been languishing. They haven't been investing in it as much as they used to. I think you are less likely to torrent a pirated copy of software that is actually malware on Mac OS than you are on Windows. Okay. That's, <laughs> I don't have anything deeper to say than that. <laughs> kind of in the continuing theme of three mostly crypto vulnerability researchers talking about platform security. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't talked to anybody who believes that Mac OS is more secure or even comparably secure to kind of a secure configuration of Windows 10 or whatever it is right now. Like, I think there's yeah. a general belief that Windows is, the, but I also don't know anybody who thinks that Windows 10 is more secure than or comparably secure to an iPad. Mm -hmm. um, 
for different reasons. It's not because the iPad is perfectly locked down, as you can obviously see, right? But if I was talking to a campaign or a journalist and giving them advice on how to deal with incoming messages and stuff like that, I'd still 100% tell them, use Gmail for everything and Mm -hmm. look at your attachments on an iPad because if you do that on Windows, you're just going to get owned for reasons that probably don't have that much to do with the software security, the intrinsic software security of the Microsoft Office platform, and more just to do with how flexible desktop environments are compared to tablet and phone environments. There was a there was the uh, Apple Epic the the game company that got they like pushed their buttons and then they got kicked off the App Store because they were trying to like actually do payments through their own App Store inside their app and they brought James Mickens as an expert witness to be like compare Mac OS or testify to the security and why all of these store restrictions are either good for security or not. And basically he was like, Mac did he OS deliver it as a stand-up routine? Like his he regular did talks? Not. Uh-huh. He delivered it quite. He was a well-delivered expert witness in a real legal trial with lots of money on the line. But he basically made the argument of like Mac OS and iOS are not significantly different, except for the fact that a Mac OS, you could just download a random, you know, executable from the internet and you can run it. Could also do it through the app store, but the OS lets you just click on something random that you downloaded from your web browser and execute it. And iOS doesn't let you do that. And there's not a significant security reason why. So anyway, yeah, flexible desktop stuff. That seems wrong. Does that seem off to you? Like that there's not a significant security reason to have more than like to, to not have that one single app store channel for installing applications. Like it seems like for end user security, you're a lot better off if you have to get your applications through the app store than just downloading them off the internet. Yes, but I think the argument that the non Apple side was trying to make is that if you really cared about this on your desktop OS, you would enforce it the same way you enforce it on iOS, like only let people install things through the app store on Mac OS and they don't. And so it's like, why? The, right. Like, and the, I mean, the conclusion think, is money so that they could take a cut of, of sales. On but we know iOS. what the real answer is there, right? Like What's you, you can answer? just look at Hacker News and every time any story about Apple platform security comes up, there's 10 comments about how this is the beginning of the end and Apple is going to take away from macOS the ability to sideload applications or run my own applications so they can control the whole platform. And you'll have to use the App Store. It's a conspiracy theory that everyone has believed for... 15 years now, right? And the reason they don't is because they can't, because their users won't let them. The, they're they not going the to, because they're different platforms for different purposes. And it's just mm. what the people on the internet don't realize is that what happens instead is normal, non-security, non-developer, non-engineer people just do all of their computing on their phone. It's not the internet and the mobile internet anymore. It's like the mobile internet or internet and the desktop internet. And maybe your um, iPad. It's not computing and mobile computing. It's computing and desktop computing. I can, if I put on like my venture capitalist market analysis hat here, right? The market is going in that direction and the Mac will continue to be, and Windows will continue to be a thing for running programs more or less how they games. do now. It's just less and less people will use it. Yeah, but I believe games. that even games are going to go to different platforms. Like, look at the Steam Deck. Now we're way off topic, but like, Ooh, I'm looking at the Steam Deck. I'm interested. Uh, in that. This is the whatever part of security tri- cryptography, whatever. It's, think, it's, it's better but, for most users to have either one or a small number of app stores in which to download software from. 
we can, we as a bunch of people who are like nerds about, about cryptography can argue that someone signed this binary and it can only be installed on this operating system if we're able to check the chain of signatures back to a trusted root or something. And we think that that is good, but it does go through this sort of somewhat arbitrary to Apple's corporate values about things that get approved and audited through the App Store review process, as opposed to just sort of randomly, like you register with Apple. And then as soon as you get a developer key pair, you can just start whipping outside binaries and they're just distributed through the App Store channel. Do you think there's any actual value in that? A hundred percent I do. I would compare it to, uh, this is terrible, right? Random topics that we're, we all think about. And David thinks that my random topic is uh, meat and my real random topic is local government right now. <laughs> but like, it's, it's analogous to everything that happens in local government and passing ordinances. So for instance, where, where I live, we're probably going to regulate Airbnb. We're going to license. You know, people can only rent out their places if they have a license. That we're worried about people like having parties and stuff in their apartments. Uh-huh. And stuff. It's been a recurring problem, right? And the people who are opposed to that point pointed it and say, well, there's about this license process that's going to prevent somebody from having a party at their place. No one can seriously check before people get in. But the point of that, the point of the licensure isn't that the licensure itself prevents the bad thing from happening, but it gives you a control point, right? Like the real teeth there are that your license get revoked, your license gets revoked, and then you you can't rent that place out again. Like that, the single channel app store with approval allows them to limit the the size of the addressable market for a piece of bad software. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point you get fairly large or lots of people start using your thingy, but you can only keep selling it if Apple approves. And at some point Apple catches up to the fact, probably because somebody told them about it or maybe because they found it themselves, they do a substantial amount of reverse engineering and things like that. Who knows? You know, either way they figure it out and then they revoke the license for it. Right. And that's it. Right. You can still get malicious software, you know, mm-hmm. onto the app store, and that has but happened. not at a, not at a huge audience size, right? At some point, okay. like it languishes, like only a couple of people ever touch it. It's hard to drive by and install an application on iOS for people. Maybe it's not. Again, what do I know, right? <laughs> but, but, but the real teeth there are that they can, they can revoke your ability to keep pushing new. And that's, that seems like self-evidently valuable to me. Okay. What about an extra app store? Does it have to be controlled by Apple? Because they let you do this on Android. They used to let you install apps, different app stores. I don't know if they still do. Same argument. I think if Apple just cut the fees, everyone would shut up about this. Yes, they probably would. Like They probably it's would. Like what the reasonable fee compared to what their current fee is, is like somewhere in the range of like 10 to $50 billion in revenue. So yeah, I understand I, why they're not. It's like the default <laughs> is a 30% cut. There's that and they don't let you make other sales or even point you to other sales inside the apps or anything like that. Like you have to make the transaction as part of the app store and they hate that too. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about NSO group, Pegasus, zero days, security nihilism. Is iOS really a bunch of trash and how would you actually fix it a little bit? What about bug bounties? Is Apple pricing their, I think their their highest bug bounty that they will pay is like a million dollars or something like that. Are they too low for the sort of vulnerabilities that Pegasus is leveraging? Because for, for an app like Pegasus, you do a one-time cost to buy the zero day, then you can deploy it over and over and over again until 
against Patch. Thomas, what do you think? We keep asking me. I'm like, I'm not just over my skis in this discussion. My skis are like (laughs) four miles behind me. I think it's ridiculous to compare the market for bug bounties to the market for exploits. Like, people have, like, moral values as well as industry-related goals or whatever as to what they're trying to do. Yeah. I don't think there's ever been a person who's like, well, I could sell this vulnerability through the Apple bug bounty program for a million dollars, or I could sell it to NSO group for $3 million, even though mm. three, that's probably still more than NSO. Like, I don't believe that they're paying that much. And so like, I, think... I don't think that's people's consideration, as well as like, I don't think there's the same people who are finding and selling exploits for the most part are not the people that are going to to bug bounties. I think at one point it it was, that was like kind of the raw consideration. I read Nicole Perler's book, uh, This Is How the World Ends, which is basically like a history of the zero day market at a pretty high level. And before bug bounties were really a thing, and if anyone has more direct experience, I'm talking about, I read other places, not direct experience. People would try to report things because they want to get them fixed for no cash. And then they would just get rebuffed and be like, oh, our lawyers are going to sue you for finding a vulnerability and exposing it and making us look bad. And they're like, well, fuck. And then people would start paying them to give them cash under the table and not tell them where uh, and just give them these uh, no competes basically on these vulns. And they're like, okay, I'm going to go over here. Then the bug bounties started to come up and they were like chump change and still a pain in the ass compared to selling it to a broker or eventually a a state actor or or an NSO group or whatever. So I don't think it's necessarily like a million dollars with Apple and $3 million with NSO group in general, but I think the actual actors in this kind of rarefied market, it might be not as an easy choice as you and I might think. Uh, Yeah. Um, I mean, I I don't know what I'm talking about here, right? (laughs) But two things I think I know. The first of them is that the direct price comparison between what people think the gray and black market pays and bounty prices doesn't work because the terms are different, right? Whatever the number that you're getting on an exploit that you sell privately is, you're not getting that in a lump sum payment. You're getting it in tranches. You continue to get tranches until the vulnerability is burnt. Really? You don't know. I've never heard of that. There was a talk at Black Hat. Two years ago? In 2019, um, yeah, it, by Mayor Schwartz, I think is his name. Yeah, M-A-O-R. And, He's a broker. And you, you read it or you hear it, and it's, it's obviously this must be how everything works because it's such a sensible way to run things. Uh-huh. But you get paid for a vulnerability as long as the vulnerability continues to work. And you, as the person who reported the vulnerability, you don't know when it's going to stop working. You're yeah. gambling when you do it that way, right? So th- that's one it's, thing. There's a contract that looks very similar to a B2B software sales. It's kind of funny. It's like the same industry. I was watching the talk at Black Hat that year, and I'm like, they're just talking about the contract negotiation that we were going through at Census. Like with anybody, like all of this stuff is there there's is. a support team. This reminds me customer in a way, success. It reminds me of how now all these ransomwares are like biz- ransomware as a service. This is so weird. All these worlds colliding. Anyway, continue. Uh, my, my other thing I think I know here is that we're not necessarily well served by Apple driving up NSO's costs. Okay. Just, not just because putting NSO out of business is bad, but also because by driving up exploit costs, you can potentially be helping NSO, right? Because their business model is essentially 
part of their business model is recurring revenue from the implant that they build, Pegasus yes. or whatever that framework is called. But yeah. part of it is also them capturing some of the value of exploit development. And as exploits get more expensive, they take a cut of that and they're going to get some revenue from that. Ultimately, the people that you're really charging here aren't NSO, they're the intelligence services of European governments. And those people can pay indefinitely more. So mm. at some point, you're just making NSO very, very rich by driving those bounty prices up. That's not to say that we shouldn't drive bounty prices up, right? Like, I think that's not the headline that I would want to have taken away here. But I, I wonder how the dynamics work. I wonder how, like, how you're actually solving a problem by making the market hotter for NSO. Mm. So if Apple's driving those costs up, and you, the idea being you want the people who have these vulns or who found them to go to Apple and give them to Apple and Apple will pay you for the rates that you would get if you went across the street and you gave it to NSO Group or a comparable broker. So it's driving up the cost. Are you saying that it that would drive up the cost of NSO Group's offerings when they sell to the Ministry of Information of France or Saudi Arabia or whoever their customers are? My thought about this is that the backstop for the pricing for vulnerabilities is ultimately the people who are ultimately using the vulnerabilities, right? That's not NSO. It's NSO's customers. Right. So whoever, if you drive the prices up, the prices are just going to get passed through to those customers. If those customers uh. are price sensitive, then that's valuable. If they're not price sensitive, which I think there's good reason to believe they're not, then you know what you're really doing is just increasing the amount of revenue that is flowing through the system. And if NSO's business model is in part that they take a 30% cut off of all the revenue that's going flowing between the exploit developer and the Ministry of Information in France, then, you know, you're helping NSO by doing that. Got it. Okay. So where do we think the break point is between the manufacturers, Apple, Google, whomever, Windows, Microsoft, who are trying to catch all of these extreme vulns beforehand so that they don't get out in the wild and NSO basically having a less attractive product because they could not buy these vulns as cheaply anymore, or they only have one, or they, they don't have a bunch of pretty great zero days. They only have one pretty great zero day and they have a couple of other single digit days. Yes, they might be ripping off Saudi Arabia or the Ministry of Information in France, but their offering is less good. It's a less good attack because Apple, Microsoft, and Google are buying up the vulns and patching them. Is there a, a balance? I mean, I think it's just like any other market. Like, yeah, the, there's supply and demand. The demand is probably like fairly constant right right now and that like intelligence agencies or governments are looking for <clears throat> they're trying to use what they can use and if stuff works well they'll keep doing it if it doesn't they'll stop but like the intelligence is still going on and the money is still there on that side and then there's some number and cost associated with how many like exploits can we find and what is the rate that we can find them at mm -hmm. so i would believe that if you like raise the bar and you do some of the engineering changes that we discussed earlier, that that could decrease the rate at which we find exploits in, say, iOS and iMessage. That then decreases the supply that NSO has, or it drastically increases the price per exploit, maybe, that mm -hmm. NSO and other organizations need. So maybe I would expect that as the security of the products 
increases some like some of the market might shrink or consolidate down right mm-hmm. i don't know whether that's going to actually reduce it may be as tom said that like nso group ends up making more money in that case but maybe they have to be a little more diligent in who they target when or how many contracts they sign mm-hmm. or the rate at which they can do something maybe they're maybe that's like the time to deliver in their contract if you have if you've signed one of the like recurring contracts with them where you aren't paying per exploit you're getting like a service in which you say, hey, I have a person and you need to go get it. Maybe the number of people you can go after per year goes down or maybe the cost of that service drastically goes up. Maybe NSO group survives and some of the smaller ones go out. I don't know. I assume that like right now, because we're hearing about NSO so much, they're doing better than at least other publicish facing exploit groups. And I totally believe that like, yeah, they have bought out other ones or employees or and so on right yeah it definitely might see more of that it definitely seems like they're not hurting and they're actually expanding their clientele Mm -hmm. and even though they say oh we're always trying to this is for catching terrorists and and so on like that it's like okay you're selling it to saudi arabia and they're murdering journalists with it but there seems to be indications that they are going like further to like local intrastate law enforcement as well and that's a bit scary too i basically agree with everything you just said (laughs) like i want the software to not be bad i want it to be good and if it's riddled with vulnerabilities that is bad and i would like to pay whoever finds the vulnerabilities to give it to us so whoever is making the software so that it it will not be bad it will be good software as much as far as humanly possible within economic costs. So I kind of just want to pay for the, the, the vulns. And then if that does make the software harder to exploit, and even if you have to raise prices, if you're NSO group to try to deliver a product, I am okay with that. I'm okay with it, right? Like <laughs> anything that you can do that makes vulnerabilities more expensive, I, for computer science reasons, I think it's a good thing. I just think that it's less a question of whether it's the right move to make for Apple and more whether we're going to get what we expect when that happens, right? right? So I guess I would put the question to both of you is, do you guys think that it's possible for Apple to price NSO, specifically NSO, out of this market? Do you think it's possible to do it? Is there like a, like, is there a check that they can write that would do it? People submitting things to their bug bounty. I don't know about price them out, although they are a trillion dollar company. They have many billions of cash in the bank, so it's not impossible. Whether they, I mean, it's certainly possible. They could literally have a billion dollar bug bounty and it would not hurt their their business. I don't think NSO would really be able to compete with that, but I don't think they will. So you're you're a yes on that, yeah. So I, I think they're, I think it is very possible in this world with this Apple in the year of our Lord 2021 that they could do this. They probably will not do this to really blow them out of the water. But I think it's very possible to match them and maybe just go just in front of them and like keep even with them. And I think that would be much more viable from a business perspective. But I don't think they're there. I don't think a million dollars is the cap. I think they need to go a couple more million dollars to really compete so that if you are, if you're trying to figure out where you want to give your exploit or your vuln, you have to be like, I really have to flip a coin 
between Apple and NSO group or whomever, then maybe like values and stuff like that will actually come into play. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking, maybe I'm too optimistic about these people who are selling their exploits. They don't think they're there yet, but I don't know. I am not in this market. I don't think Apple could buy out that market. Like for starters, not everybody selling vulnerabilities is like a U.S. tech worker with like plenty of options for contracting and or what they're doing with their life, right? If I am in a less economically stable country and I don't have a way to get into the bug bounty for Apple or like for whatever reason, or I won't be taken seriously, or I can get paid a lot. I don't have a way to accept US dollars or I don't have a bank account, but someone is willing to pay me a lot of money to get this or even not that much money, but like they're here. Great. If I'm in the military of another company, right? Like it's not like someone working for the PLA can just decide (laughs) that they want to go and sell the Apple instead. Right. So there's just no way they could buy. That's a good point everything no matter what their price was and again beyond that like i think the thing that really answers this question like what i would love to see would be like if nso made a pitch deck to raise from vcs that described their market and their financials like that would be fascinating like obviously (laughs) you shouldn't fund them but like that's the thing that would reveal this and we don't the closest that we have to that are like some of the talks from people who have been brokers explaining like what makes a good or a bad vulnerability and like the difference between what they're looking for and what most bug bounties pay for and like what they expect like the size of the supply side of the market is like the people who are good at finding these vulnerabilities so yeah i I think that you could decrease the supply i think you could decrease the rate and probably drive up nso's prices would that make it go away no but like i think you can certainly make the situation better than it is now that in a way maybe that still drives up nso's prices but maybe it reduces their the number of targets that it can be used on and And even if it doesn't even if all it does is drive up nso's prices and nso makes more money like we're still probably in a better situation what percentage of this problem do you think apple could make go away if they just rewrote everything that was on the platform in swift and rust uh, like half of all of their vulns, apparently, at least half are memory safety related. So that doesn't mean half of all exploits that NSO group would leverage in their toolkit or in their payload, but it does mean half as many links in the chain for you to put together and do something with. Yeah. So that's a good rule of thumb. <laughs> I go with uh, 65% and I'm actually not pulling that making that number up. Alex Gaynor has done yes. some like empirical research on if you have a large code base, what percentage of like the bugs that you know about and CVEs were caused by memory on safety issues. And it's basically at 65% and it holds across yep. Android. It holds across iOS. It holds across Chrome. It holds across yep. Windows. It holds across Firefox's CSS subsystem. So if you can get rid of 65% of your bugs, like that's, that's going to have an impact on the supply. I'm more optimistic than both of you in this one weird case, right? So <laughs> I would imagine that for the kinds of exploits that NSO needs, for the, the things that they're trying to do, that you could be north of 80% if you get mm. rid of all the memory safety vulnerabilities. Or, or you know, more, more candidly, like with the question I asked, if you rewrote everything in Swift and Rust, whatever memory safety issues are left over, I still think you'd be down to a very small fraction of the bugs that NSO needs to provide the value that they're providing now. Mm-hmm. I think... Eliminating all the memory safety bugs. This does not include logic bugs, but it may correct me if I'm wrong, but they seem like 
they are less powerful than most of the memory safety bugs because they just give you a better platform to leverage into the using the next one in your chain. Why do you think it's 85%? Well, I think it's north of 80%. Right. Why do you think it's so high? Do you think it's basically if you, it's not just one-to-one, -one, if you remove 65% of the vulnerabilities and those ones you removed are memory safety ones, do you kind of agree with my like smell test of these memory safety vulnerabilities basically let you do more for than, yeah. than general logic vulnerabilities? I think disproportionately the vulnerabilities that give you code execution, which is what they need to do yes. implants, those are memory safety vulnerabilities. And I think m even more so the vulnerabilities that you need to do local privilege escalation to go from inside of the sandbox to outside the sandbox and the kernel. Like, are there, somebody's going to correct me and, you know, point out a chain that doesn't involve a memory safety vulnerability. Sure. But I think if you take those vulnerabilities off the chain, uh, off the table, those bug chains are all pretty much broken. Yeah. I, I think I agree. How else do you get code execution besides like memory unsafety, right? You'll probably still have platform memory safety vulnerabilities. Like you'll be keeping like you know, a page table reference counter somewhere, yeah. some, some, some place where the interface between Rust and the platform starts hitting, right? Like I think you'll still have vulnerabilities that are mm -hmm. that low level yeah. and there's nothing the Rust runtime can really do about it. Yeah, I think you you'll still have like- write Oh gosh, what's the, the memory addresses that are actually hardware, right? You can't write mm -hmm. to that without unsafe. And like, right. You, Arm doesn't get, have a borrow checker someday, but, <laughs> uh, but right now I think, yeah. Even when you're using the unsafe things in Rust, there's still like a ton of checks that give you a lot more safety than the, the writing the same thing in C. But so it's just you have to write in Rust and it's hey, like impossible hey to experiment. <laughs> I mean, I, I like Rust too, but like. What do you mean by experiment? They, the example I always give is I was once working on some build tooling, uh -huh. and in five minutes in Python, I got farther than three days of Rust just like trying to map out a graph of dependencies and do some stuff because the oh, code okay. runs when it doesn't compile, and okay. I don't need to know what I'm doing ahead of time. Okay. All right. All right. Cool. So that seems to circle back to what we were talking about in the beginning, which is that it seems like quote unquote, rewriting it all in Swift slash Rust or another memory safe language would give you extreme bang for your buck in reducing um, the number of vulnerabilities and the, the most impactful vulnerabilities, at least in getting privilege escalation and code execution, period. So should they just, one, I, I think they should rewrite it all in Rust or Zig or Swift or if you're Apple. Do we have any signals that they're like, it's Apple. It's like a locked box and they threaten your children if you leak anything. We don't have any, 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 I haven't seen any ex signals externally about them trying to rewrite some of these most vulnerable parts in Swift. We have this, the sandbox that's written in Swift around iMessage. But so if, yeah, if you're the, if you're the head of platform security for, for Apple, why aren't you just doing this right now? Maybe they are but I don't think they are. You know, I think you said it's a lot of bang for your buck and I don't know what the ratio is there. So what the yeah. amount of bang is, but it's a lot of bucks yeah, right, yeah. that you're talking about. Cause you're, again, it's root and branch. Like everything there is pretty much getting torn out. So there's that yeah. problem. There was another thing I was going to say and I totally forgot what I was going to say. So. That's fine. <laughs> okay. I mean, my Go. hot take has always been that like the the best way to improve like the security of an organization is to become the VP of engineering, which I think I'm also stealing from Alex Gaynor. I think he might have said that first. But like, again, like you need to know something about engineering, right, and be able to right. still do that job. But again, we have it's, this is a tractable engineering problem. It's just very hard and it's very large. And even if you have 
an unlimited budget, like it's still hard. I think it's also like the solution space for this problem. Like right now, I think it's sane to look at the landscape and say, just rewrite everything in Swift and Rust. But like, how long have those languages been viable for doing large scale systems work? It's been a little while, but it hasn't been you know, 10 years wherein they could literally rewrite everything in Rust. And also, when you tell Apple that they're rewriting everything in Rust, we imagine that you're telling Alex Gaynor and his acolytes to rewrite things in Rust. But actually, you're addressing the entire application yeah. programming, you know, programmer yeah. and as somebody who has yeah. gone recently from one language to Rust, the learning curve there is not gentle. I um, it's, forget it's, that they're written in Objective-C, that the applications themselves are written in Objective-C, whereas at least on Android, they're all written in Java or like the Android flavor of Java. Summary safety of C and the blazing speed of small talk. <laughs> it's... Yeah, I think that the post that, that, that Matt Green wrote mentions like they should be using things like pointer authentication and things like that. And they do, but Objective-C actually gives you vectors that work around PAC. It's, there are probably ways in which Objective-C is substantially worse than C from a security perspective. Can you tell me more? Uh, I don't know any details about Objective-C really. I've never written it. I think you, you, you just get a bunch of pointers, like a bunch of function pointers that are easy to target and overwrite um, that you don't get in a standard C runtime. So like, it was like an ISA pointer or something like that that was reliably, you can find it and send messages to it. Yeah, but it has yeah, like the, a built-in message passing an object framework that is all just pointer based that is on everything Fun. yeah there, there was there was a pack bypass that involved objective c runtime stuff this is why the fact that rewriting things in rust requires you to like think about things in a completely new way and restructure your problem as basically like a dag of data transformations <laughs> which is more difficult in certain cases than others compared to say something like Zig, which does not offer quite the guarantees Rust does, but is still like way, way safer. Mm. And you can compile with like complete safety by just inserting enough checks, right? Like more innovation in the programming language space, even beyond yes. Rust is going to result in probably being more suitable for some of these things. Not that like you can't do all this from scratch in Rust. I think that's the whole like value proposition of the Oxide Computer Company. Yes. But <laughs> starting from scratch and replacing bits are, you know, two different tasks. That's true. And I I wouldn't be surprised if Apple with their own programming language would go with Swift before they go with Rust, at least for a lot of pieces. Yeah. Okay. Facts about bears? Questions about meat? My, my bear fact for the day is I recommend everybody read Stephen Herrero's Bear Attacks, Their Causes and Avoidance. Maciej Sokwowski said it was one of his favorite books, and I'm reading it. And my, my alternate title for it is When You Are Engulfed in Bears. And it was fantastic. And I will come armed with more bear facts further into this into this thing that we're trying to do here. But. Awesome. I'm pulling it up now, and I can't, I cannot. This is a great book. <laughs> it, is what, it, it is what it says on the label. It's just bear attacks, stories about bear attacks, and how they happened. Uh, the book behind the movie 127 Hours, I think it's called Between a Rock and a Hard Place, um, <laughs> about the guy that had to cut his arm off because it got stuck under a boulder or something when he was rock climbing. Mm -hmm. He has other stories in there, including one where a bear followed him for about 24 hours. And I believe he did what you were not supposed to do and just yelled at the bear, but... If you want even more bear stories. If the bear is trying to eat you and it is a grizzly bear in the bear flow chart, then you're supposed to yell. <laughs> There's but a if bear, the bear flow chart. <laughs> there is. But if the bear is not trying to eat you, which is a much more common case, and it's a grizzly bear, then you are not supposed to scare it or make noises because it will attack you until you stop making noises. That uh -huh. is what I now know about bears. Wow. 
this is this is handy useful information not just uh, random facts useful i was in northern michigan recently and i had heard that the place that i was in there had been some like bear sightings nearby and i was going for a run one morning and when i go for runs i usually don't wear my glasses because they get loose and they bounce around and I don't have contacts because I find them gross. I fell asleep in my And so I was running also. back <laughs> and then I'm going down this dirt road and I just see this black blob. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know if this is a bear or a dog. But it turns out it was a dog. But if you're worried about bears, bring your glasses with is the other piece of advice that I have. This is not a good bear story. But And on that note... <laughs> <laughs>